I'm going to be reading Matthew 16:28 through 17:9. Says, "Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom." 6 days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brothers and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Well, here we are uh, on the heels of a holiday week. How was your week? Probably somebody in here shows up after having just completed a roller coaster of a week. Anybody have a roller coaster of a week this week? A roller coaster of a week? So you had some really highs, you had some really lows, some twists, some turns, some loops, maybe even a little bit of vomiting to make it a real roller coaster week. It's not all that unusual this time of year to have had a roller coaster of a week. And where we open up the Gospel of Matthew today, one of Jesus' good friends and disciples, a guy he just named Peter, has just completed a roller coaster of a week. Here's how Peter's week has gone. It started on a real high point. Six days before chapter 17 opens, Jesus walking along with his disciples asked them, who do people say that I am and who do you guys say that I am? And Peter, speaking on behalf of the disciples, said, you are the Christ You're the son of the living God. And then Jesus really just affirmed Peter's answer. He said, Peter, it's like Jesus said, that's such a great answer that it's like you have God's thoughts in your brain and in your heart. And and he renamed him Peter and he said, you're going to be like the first foundational stone of the foundation of this thing I'm going to build called the church. And boy, what a, you know, what a high note to be sort of you know, honored or praised by Jesus in front of your friends. So that's a real high note. But no sooner did Jesus say that, that he started to explain from then on what it meant that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he started to tell his disciples, we're going to go to Jerusalem. My enemies are going to... Uh, mistreat me and kill me. Well, Peter didn't like the sounds of that as the the roller coaster starts down in a a downward trajectory. So so Peter, he's going to fix this. He's going to make the roller coaster head back up. He decides he's going to rebuke Jesus. He pulls him to the side and, and tells him basically, stop talking about all this suffering stuff. That would never happen to you. And then 
Jesus called Peter Satan. Now, I don't care how good of a week you've been happening. If Jesus calls you Satan in front of all your friends, you are now having a bad week. And the roller coaster seems to have bottomed out until it gets worse. And what we studied last week happened, and Jesus tells his disciples, not only am I going to suffer and die, but anyone who wants to be my follower must be willing to give up control of their lives, deny themselves, lose their life in order to save it must be willing to suffer the shame. You're going you're gonna to give control over your life to me. And as you go where I lead you and do what I want you to do, you have to carry your cross. Be willing to be opposed. Be willing to be shamed. Be willing to be humiliated. And some of you may even have to be killed for following me. That's a pretty low point on the roller coaster ride. If you think about it, who would ever sign up for a movement like that? And Jesus said, yeah, anybody can be my follower. And guess what you get out of the deal? (laughs) You get to give up control over your life. And you get like shame and humiliation and people are going to make fun of you. And and thousands of my followers over the next few thousand years are, are going to be killed just for following me. Where do I sign up? Right? Why would anybody do that? Ah, today, the roller coaster shoots back up toward the top. And in the passage we study today, it's usually just called the transfiguration. We see why we should be willing to follow Jesus in spite of what he just taught us following him might entail. You know what this passage reminds me of? War of the Worlds. You may know what War of the Worlds was. Um, I don't know that any of us were around to hear it on CBS radio, but the War of the Worlds, back in the late 1930s, Orson Welles um, sort of directed and narrated this radio program. It was around Halloween. It was for Halloween. And the way it went down was this. It, it played out. The script had, them, had CBS broadcasting as if they were just broadcasting the news. And suddenly there was breaking news. We interrupt this program type of a deal. And they uh, broadcast as if aliens had landed and were beginning to kill people on earth. The Martians had landed. Now at the beginning of the program, CBS very clearly broadcast that this is fiction. This isn't real. Nobody panic. Here's the problem. A lot of people were listening to a different program that didn't get over in time. They turned over their radios to CBS and they didn't hear the full story. They didn't hear that this was fake. They heard CBS News broadcasting that there were Martians killing people. And in a very local, it was the first fake news. This was it. And, and it was huge. It was huge. The, and in a very localized world, 
right? It's not like people got on Facebook, right? Or, or, or Twitter or anything. In a very localized world, they would send people over to the neighbor's house and say, go tell them to turn the radio to CBS. And in little pockets of America, you know, if there wasn't somebody in your neighborhood that said, no, I heard the beginning of the program. It's a play, right? If there wasn't anybody in your neighborhood that could say that to you, it's just there were panic ensued. Now, here's why that reminds me, the transfiguration reminds me of that. It's like this is the beginning of the broadcast where Jesus gives away the ending. Jesus knows. He has just told his disciples, you are asking people to sign up for something that's difficult, sometimes humiliating, sometimes painful. And then he tells us, he gives these three of his disciples, he gives them a preview. This is like the movie trailer that gives away the good parts. That you want to know why would anybody sign up for following Jesus? This is why anyone would sign up for following Jesus. It will be worth it in the end. That's what the transfiguration is. Jesus has been teaching. He's been what sounded like a lot of bad news. Then he says this. I tell you guys the truth. There are some standing here who will not experience death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. That can be a confusing verse of of Scripture. You know why? Because all of the people who were standing there have experienced death. Except for Jesus. Well, even Jesus experienced death, didn't he? And Jesus, the Son of Man, has not begun his kingdom yet. You can find that promise three times in in the Gospels. Guess what happens every single time right after Jesus makes that promise? What we're going to study today. What we're going to study today, the transfiguration, is the fulfillment of that promise where Jesus says, some of you, not all of you, some of you are going to see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. You're going to get a preview of the kingdom. And the transfiguration is that preview. In verses 1 through 3, Jesus is transfigured. It it begins this way. Six days later, six days after Jesus promised, some of you are going to see me coming in the kingdom. Jesus took with him some of them, not all of them, some of them. He takes his inner circle from among his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. James and John are the brothers there. Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and he led them privately up a high mountain, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. We'll stop right there. The the, the Greek word that gets translated, he was transfigured. The Greek word there, this will sound a little familiar to you, even if you don't uh, speak any Greek or read any Koine Greek. But he metamorphothei. What's that sound like? Metamorphothe. Does that sound like metamorphosized a little bit? That's what happened to Jesus. He metamorphosized, in the Greek, on that mountain. What's a a metamorphosis? It's a change that's sort of from within. It's a change to, 
into a thing. Like a caterpillar goes into a cocoon or something, and it's still the same thing, but it's, but it's changed when it comes out, right? Here's why I bring this up. This is all Jesus. He has some sort of change. The reason I bring this up, verse 3 says, Then Moses and Elijah also appeared before them, talking with Jesus. In all the paintings I'm going to show you, there's two guys standing. There's Moses and Elijah that come and hang out with Jesus. Moses, he had an experience. If you know your Old Testament, Moses had an experience where he climbed up a high mountain and he had an experience with God. And when he came down the mountain, he was kind of glowing. Do you know that story? But this is different. Moses did not go through a metamorphosis. Moses was like a reflector. Moses was like a, um, it's like he got radiated by God. (laughs) He kind of was close enough to God's glory that God's glory soaked into him a little bit. And for a period of time, Moses' appearance was different. Notice, God the Father is going to show up on the mountain up here in some way. But he ain't there yet. When Jesus starts a shining, God the Father hasn't shown up yet. The glory that Jesus has is all his own. It was inside of him. It's like he peels back a little of the Clark Kent to show the Superman inside. His glorified state is shown in a preview fashion to these disciples, but it's all him. It's all him. Why is that important? The verse I showed you during, before we sang the rest of the songs this morning, God said, I will not share my glory with another. The, Jesus has glory, the glory of God inside of himself because he's God. Because he's God. And so he's up there on the mountain and he's, he's transfigured. He metamorphosizes. He let his, his glorified state is allowed to shine through his humanity, so to speak. And then there are two other gentlemen that join him up there, Moses and Elijah. We are never told how these guys knew this was Moses and Elijah. And I don't know. Maybe they talked long enough that they just overheard their conversation. That seems reasonable. Maybe um, God just allowed them to have this understanding. Maybe they had name tags like, hello, my name is Moses. And Jesus put the stickers on them before they came in. I don't know. But three gospels tell us that's who this, who this was. And they're important to the story. Moses and Elijah are two giants from the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. Uh, Together they sort of symbolize the whole Old Testament. Jesus used to refer to to the Old Testament as the Law and the Prophets. Who wrote the Law? Moses. He wrote the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. And Elijah is sort of Israel's most beloved prophet. So together, these guys like are the, the, the law and the prophets. And probably of anyone in Scripture who didn't hang out with Jesus, these two gentlemen probably shared the closest like human relationship 
to God in the Old Testament. These guys both spoke conversationally with God. Like they talked to God and God like talked back. So they are they're giants of the Old Testament. Um, we're going to talk more about Elijah next week because they're going to ask some questions, the disciples will, about Elijah on their way down the mountain. But that's the, that's the scene that's going on. Can you imagine? It, well, actually, we probably can't imagine what that would have looked like. Jesus is, is, is glorified in front of them, and suddenly two men that have been gone for something like 700 years and, and 1,400 years, 800 years and 1,400 years respectively are, are up there. They're just visiting with Jesus. And the disciples are taking this in until Peter interrupts their conversation. I love Peter. Uh, so th- Peter interrupts their conversation and starts talking. Now, I know some of you, you are Bible studiers and you really want to dive in and, and understand what is said. My advice to you is going to be don't spend too much time trying to discern what Peter says here. Okay? It's pretty nonsensical. Here's what he says. So these, these guys are, are having their own conversation and Peter interrupts. Jesus, Elijah, and Moses to say this, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you want, I'll make three shelters or tents or tabernacles. I'll make one for you. I'll make one for Moses. I'll make one for Elijah. It'll be awesome. If you can't quite make sense of that, that's okay. Because the other gospel writers let us know Peter didn't know what Peter was talking about either. When Mark tells this story, Mark tells us that Peter said what he said because he did not know what to say. Do you know anybody that just starts talking because they don't know what to say or they can't handle silence? Maybe you are that person. Some of the rest of us should, should clue you into that. That's Peter. Luke tells us, Luke tells us plainly that Peter did not know what he was saying. So in those two accounts, he didn't know what to say and he didn't know what he was saying. He was just talking. Maybe he wants this to last. Like, this is so awesome. And it had to be. And so maybe he's like, I'll, I'll make you guys a little three-bedroom apartment. And you can just move in. You just stay right here. There's no sense of running off. And I think that Peter thought he was being very complimentary by suggesting to Jesus that he make an equal accommodation for Jesus that he made to these two giants of the Old Testament. I think Peter thinks, he's saying to Jesus, hey boss, I'm going to make you just as good of a shelter as I'm going to make for Elijah and Moses. Well, that's what Peter says. But the next person to talk is God the Father. And he's going to let Peter know that Peter's being inappropriate. Probably for suggesting the equality of those three, and probably Peter's being inappropriate because he's talking at all. So Peter had interrupted Jesus, and now God interrupts Peter. God the Father interrupts Peter's interruption. Look at this. While he was still speaking, that's Peter. 
So Peter is still talking. And while Peter is talking, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, This is my one dear son in whom I take great delight. Listen to him. Seemingly, I believe, responding to to Peter's notion that three equal structures be be made for three equal men. I I want you to notice not just what God says here, but what he doesn't say. Who does he ignore in what he says? He doesn't say a thing about Moses. He doesn't say a thing about Elijah. He doesn't say... Peter, you shouldn't be talking when you have these three swell guys to listen to. In a way, Peter's trying to equate Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. Do you know who the three equals are in that scenario? In a way, Peter is the one who's equal to Moses and Elijah. Should we listen To Moses and Elijah, you and me? Yes. We can pick up this book, this collection of books. We call it a Bible. We can read what Moses wrote. We can read um, the stories that involve Elijah, and we should listen to those things. You know who else we should listen to? Peter. We can go to the back of this book, and we can read stuff that Peter wrote. But guess who trumps them all? He doesn't say Peter. These are three swell guys you should pay attention to. He says, <laughs> part of this is probably, Peter, you need to, you need to, you need to, I don't know if God would tell anybody to shut up, but if he ever would, this would be the time. Like, Peter, you should shut up and listen. And who you should listen to more than Elijah and more than Moses, you should listen to this one. Why? Because, God says, this is my one dear son. Higher than Moses, greater than Elijah. The only person who has ever lived that God can say this about is Jesus. This is the one in whom I take great delight all by himself. He doesn't need any help. He's perfectly pleasing to me. And there's only one. His name is Jesus. Listen to him. One reason why I'm convinced that this is the fulfillment of Jesus' promise in the last verse of chapter 16, where Jesus said, Guys, some of you will not die before you see the Son of Man coming in my kingdom. You know what the kingdom of Jesus is going to look like in one sense? He is going to be glorified. And he's going to be greater than every, every person who ever walked the earth. He is going to be supreme and no one's going to question it. Greater than Moses, greater than the prophets, greater than angels. So this isn't the full inauguration of Messiah's kingdom, but it's a preview of it, an important preview of it. Now in the Bible... There are a few occasions where, where God shows up to people. How do people normally respond when God shows up? 
usually it's pretty similar to, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm getting ahead of myself. Sorry. Back up. We need to talk about Moses just a minute. We'll talk more about Elijah next week. But there's another important designation of Jesus in what God the Father says. Moses, um, the giant of the Old Testament, how did Moses receive the law from God? Do you know that story? How did he get the Ten Commandments? Do you remember that? Moses went up the high mountain, right? Well, at the end, and he stood between God and people. Do you know the story? Read it later. It's in Exodus chapter 20. The nation of Israel just got out of slavery. They're out in the wilderness. God shows up and he's going to tell these people who've been saved from slavery, he's going to tell them how to live now that they've been saved. And the first thing he's going to give them is the Ten Commandments. And when God originally starts talking, everyone can hear him. All the people. And guess how they react? They go, we don't want to hear that anymore. When we hear the booming, thunderous voice of God, it feels like we're going to die. It's too scary. And so they say, hey, Moses, tell you what, why don't you go up the mountain? You talk to God so we don't have to hear this. And then you listen to what he says. You come down, you tell us what God said, and we'll listen to you. It's too scary to listen to God. And in that way, Moses was like a go-between, a stand between God, stand between, between, stood between God and the people. Does that make sense? While he was up there, God told Moses, someday, Moses, I'm going to do this again. I'm going I'm to raise up a prophet like you, Moses, somebody else who's going to stand between me and people. Moses told the people that just before he died. Deuteronomy chapter 18. It might be kind of small. That's all right. I'm going to read it to you anyway. So this is Moses talking, and he's telling the people this. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. This accords with what happened at Horeb, that's Mount Sinai. In the day of the assembly, you ask the Lord your God, please do not make us hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore or see this great fire anymore, lest we die. We're literally scared we're going to die when you talk. The Lord then said to Moses, what they've said is good. I will raise up a prophet like you for them from among their fellow Israelites. I will put my words in his mouth and he will speak to them whatever I command. I will personally hold responsible anyone who then pays no attention to the words that prophet speaks in my name. You catch that story? Someday there's going to be a prophet like Moses. One argument against Jesus being the Messiah is that the Israelites said the Messiah won't come until God sends the prophet like Moses. Guess what they missed? Jesus was the king, the Messiah, and the prophet like Moses all rolled into one. It wasn't two separate people. Here's how we see that in this verse. This is my one dear son in whom I take great delight. Listen to him. 
What did God tell Israel? When I send the prophet like Moses, what did Israel have to do? Listen to him. And I'm going to hold everyone personally accountable who won't listen to him. And this is God saying, he's my son. He's the Messiah. He's divine. He's one in in nature with me. And he's the prophet like Moses. The greatest king, the greatest prophet rolled into one. Listen to him. And when God gets done talking, as I said a minute ago, here's how the disciples have responded to the voice of God the Father speaking from that cloud. When the disciples heard this, they heard God speak. They were overwhelmed with fear and they threw themselves down with their faces to the ground. This is a normal response to hearing God speak from being in God's presence. You know why? Because God is terrifying. God is terrifying for regular, sinful, human people like us. I've said this before, but ultimately, you know, Jesus, he stood greater than Moses did. He stood between God and us. Jesus saved us. Ultimately, do you know what Jesus saved us from? From God. Because someone is going to pay for your sins and mine. Either us as individuals or Jesus will have done so at the cross. But it's a terrifying thing to walk before a holy God while your sins are still on your own head. He's terrifying. You know why people throw themselves on the ground? The disciples just want to like press themselves into the dirt. They want to disappear like moles to get away from God. Because it's not, that they, it's not so much just that they think they could die, it's that they know they deserve to die. There's something about God's holiness that when a sinful person is in his presence, they, they go, I should die, I deserve to die. His justice should be poured out on me, he should snuff me out like a bug. I want out of here. There's another story of Moses. Moses when he's up on, on Mount Sinai, he asks God, he says, I want to see you. Do you know that part of the story? The Bible's great. You should read it sometime. He says, show me your glory. Like, I don't know what you look like. You've been in a, a bush that is on fire that never burns up. I saw that. But like, I want to see all of you, God. Show me your glory. And God knows If I show you my glory, like you're going to die. It's not going to be. Here's what he does. He he puts Moses in a cleft of a rock. He like shoves him in the granite mountainside and he passes by Moses real quickly. And even that was terrifying to Moses because God is terrifying for sinful people. And that's what makes verse 7 my favorite verse in this passage. And a very underrated verse in all of Scripture. Because God is terrifying. Is Jesus God? Yes. And what we've seen, He's been glorified and the voice of God is booming and the whole thing is very scary. And then in verse 7 we read this. Then Jesus came and touched these guys and said, Get up, you don't have to be afraid. You know how striking that is? 
Do you know what Jesus does for people like you and me? He makes God like approachable, accessible. He makes us touchable. He takes, not that we shouldn't have reverent awe for God, but he takes the fear out of standing before God. Because like Moses, he stood in between God the Father and sinful people. Only when Jesus didn't, did it, he didn't bring us the rules and tell us how to live. He took the punishment we deserve because we can't live by the rules. Amen? And then he can come to you and me. When you recognize you are a sinful person who hasn't kept the rules, when you realize if I stand before God just because I'm better than my neighbor and better than the other Christians I know and all that stuff, I am doomed. If you go to Jesus, he'll come and touch you and say, hey, just get up and walk with me. Come on, little buddy. <laughs> Jesus makes, makes it to where you can stand before God because you know Jesus. He takes the fear out of the fear of God, the terror. And so the disciples, when they look up, all they saw was Jesus alone. And you know what they're supposed to learn? That that's enough. They've been through this tremendous experience, this roller coaster week. Oh, following him is going to be so hard. Why would we ever do that? Oh, that's why. Transfigure Jesus. That's where we're headed. I get it. I want to go there. I don't want this ever to end. I want to have this eternally. I'll build you a three bedroom apartment. God starts talking, whoa, whoa, maybe there has to be something else. I don't feel like I can, I can live with God. And then they say, just see Jesus alone, and that's, that's enough. If you want to stand before God, Jesus alone is what will allow you to do it. In the last verse uh, of this passage, I, Jesus just tells them, they're getting ready to go down the mountain. He says, hey boys, don't tell anybody about this until after the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Don't, don't tell anybody about this until the cross and the empty tomb have happened. And that would have been a tough secret to keep, right? So they, they march down the hill. Nathaniel says, hey guys, what happened up there? Uh, nothing. Can't talk about it. You know why not? Because none of this that I've described makes a lick of sense without the cross and the empty tomb. None of it. Because until we know that that, the cross, is how Jesus was a prophet like Moses that stood between God and us, and until we know that he overcame our sin and he rose again from the dead, not the transfiguration doesn't make a bit of sense without it. And so after the after the resurrection, after the Son of Man rose from the dead, they write it in the Gospels so that we have this story. And what do we learn? God's terrifying. The disciples learn that too. Hey, hey, I want to live with you forever. And God starts talking, change my mind, change my mind. I don't want to live with you anymore. I want to disappear into this mountain. You know why? Because the cross hadn't happened yet. Peter was still in his sins. He can't stand before God. But one day he would. After Jesus paid for every sin Peter ever sinned. 
And then one day when you and I fall not into a mountain, but fall into our own graves, if we have believed in Jesus, he will come to us even then and say, get up. Get up, you're going to have to go stand before the Father. I can't go up there. He's holy and perfect and right. I know. Jesus will say, but if you stand up there with me, you're fine. I've got this. I've picked up the tab that all your sins have deserved. And don't miss where this comes in the story arc. Jesus just gave us the news about how difficult it's going to be to follow him. But he tells us ahead of time. He tells us ahead of time why it's going to be worth it. This is coming. This is coming. So we live with Jesus. We believe in Jesus. We walk with Jesus. We get up. We're not afraid. We carry our cross knowing there's a better reality coming. Why don't you pray with me? Father God, I thank you, for, thank you for this passage, for giving us the information ahead of time that we would need to be able to live boldly for Jesus Christ when that's scary, when it's difficult, when it's painful. Because you allow the disciples to begin to tell this story. They gave the trailer that gives away the good parts of the movie. And, and God, the trailer is so good and so intriguing we know the eternal length feature will be better. God, this is why we can live with you because you, or live for you because you make the God of the universe approachable and touchable and relatable because you stood in our place, Lord Jesus, not telling us to follow the rules but by absorbing the punishment we deserve for our failure to follow them. We love you, Lord. Help us to live for you in a way that other people can know it is you we live for. Not because that way that we live gets us to heaven, but because we are walking with the one who does get us to heaven. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. 